Good evening. Anti-government protests grow in Colombia with dozens reported killed. Voter suppression and a lawsuit targets the NYPD's treatment of Black Lives Matter protests near Union Square Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, May 6, 2021. Protesters in Bogota, Colombia's capital, were met with a violent crackdown by police forces today. They're opposing a proposed tax reform plan favorable to the rich. Clashes have continued for more than a week, and at least 24 people have been killed and hundreds injured in the South American nation. The proposed tax reform was supposed to increase taxes on individuals and businesses and eliminate many exemptions. The government claims the reform is aimed to help the country's economy ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic. Colombia's National Strike Committee says over 100 people were injured and 30 protesters went missing during demonstrations that have been taking place since last week in Pereira City. Reportedly, a young student was shot to death by police on Wednesday night during a peaceful demonstration. And in the Central American nation of El Salvador, the president, Nayib Bukele, has put his weight behind the removal of five justices of that nation's Supreme Court in what is being denounced in El Salvador as a coup d'etat. While the Supreme Court of El Salvador is not known as a progressive body, the move is seen by human rights groups as an unconstitutional attack on a democratically elected body by a strongman president who has styled himself as a Central American version of former U.S. President Donald Trump. And while the Biden administration has been critical, organizers say the U.S. position is condescending and no match for President Bukele's assault on El Salvador's fledgling democracy. In 1992, after years of bitter guerrilla war, a peace agreement allowed power sharing between the oligarchs who ruled the country and the FMLN, a rebel group fighting for democracy. Bukele started as a member of the FMLN political party, but soon changed his stripes. A spokesperson for the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador is Yasmina Portillo. He's kind of a chameleon, a political chameleon, but the policies that he's begun to implement have clearly been right-wing, corporate, profit-driven policies that are much more aligned with a fascist, nationalist, right-wing than anything that will actually bring positive changes for the people of El Salvador. Tell me what the Biden administration response has been. When Nayib Bukele came to office, we were under a Trump presidency. So he positioned himself as a Trump ally. He came actually to political power through the FMLN. He was also a political outsider. He wasn't an organized militant. The FMLN kind of allowed him to participate in electoral politics, representing them as a sort of strategic move, not necessarily because of complete alignment there. He is part of the elite and the oligarchy. Trump also a political outsider, so they, they meshed really well in that sense. He quickly became a clear populist authoritarian leader in El Salvador, and I think was perhaps banking on a Trump presidency again, because he threw all his eggs in that basket. The Biden administration has 
shown a lot of discontent and disapproval. So you think that's positive? For me, as somebody who does not believe in U.S. intervention, my work is to denounce U.S. imperialism. And, and I believe that that is one of the major root causes of why Salvadorans cannot achieve a dignified life in El Salvador. The economic interests of Nayib Bukele and the economic interests of the Biden-Harris administration, which is to increase the role of the private sector in essential things like water management, education, energy, etc., are the same. Well, how does that affect migration? The idea of a lot of politicians in the U.S. that the best way to help, quote-unquote, Central America is to increase private sector investment, transnational investment, etc., in Guatemala, in Honduras, and in El Salvador, we don't want the private sector controlling our health care, our energy systems. We don't want these destructive infrastructure projects. People are displaced from their communities. They can no longer afford to pay their energy bills because they've increased by 150%, as is like the situation in, in Guatemala. Indigenous leaders in Salvador that are fighting to protect their rivers from exploitation, from dams, and this happens also, of course, in Honduras, are often targeted by the corporations in different ways, either by the police or by gang members that are getting paid by corporations and are seeing themselves also forced to flee. There's many different ways, but lack of opportunity for a dignified life is what happens. Trump singled out MS-13, some gang with roots in El Salvador, as like the bad hombres. Nayib Bukele also uses the specter of gang violence in El Salvador to control the population. He uses fear to say, we need more military and police repression. This is an issue of the criminalization of youth that have a lack of opportunities. MS-13 was born in the United States from people that were forcibly displaced from civil war that was being financed by the United States in the 80s, who came to the United States under Reagan that was criminalizing black and brown youth already. The Clinton administration started deporting these youth en masse to a war-torn El Salvador where they continue to implement economic policies that continue to devastate rather than build up the economy there. What do you want from all of this? Acknowledging the fact that the real issue here is lack of the needs of marginalized communities being addressed. We're calling for no more that incentivizes the private sector that destroys the environment than that is not beneficial to the community. Yasmina Portillo is a spokesperson for the committee in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. And in Washington, GOP Representative Elise Stefanik stated her case Thursday for replacing Representative Liz Cheney as the number three House Republican leader, implicitly lambasting Cheney's battles of former President Donald Trump by saying, we are one team, and that means working with the president. The remarks by Stefanik, a Republican from New York, a one-time moderate who's evolved into an ardent Trump champion, came as Cheney seems likely to be tossed from her leadership post next week. Facing opposition from Trump, 
Trump in the House's two top Republicans, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Whip Steve Scalise, Cheney has remained defiant. In a letter published in the Washington Post, Cheney denounced the, quote, dangerous and anti-democratic Trump cult of personality and warned her fellow Republicans against embracing or ignoring his statements for fundraising and political purposes. Meanwhile, the real president, Democrat Joe Biden, said the country desperately needs two parties, but the GOP is imploding. It seems as though the Republican Party is trying to identify what it stands for. And they're in the midst of a significant uh, sort of mini revolution going on in the Republican Party. Um, I've been a Democrat for a long time. We've gone through periods where we've had internal fights and disagreements. I don't ever remember any like this. And so, as one of you said, and I'm not embarrassed by identifying them, as one of you said on national television last night, we badly need a Republican Party. We need a two-party system. It's not healthy to have a one-party system. And I think the Republicans are further away from trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for than I thought they would be at this point. President Biden. In Florida, another Trump acolyte, GOP Governor Ron DeSantis, signed a wide-ranging list of new voting restrictions into law today. At a live bill-signing event aired exclusively on Fox News, DeSantis said the new law would prevent fraud and restore confidence in Florida's elections. DeSantis then went on to surprise even Fox, saying, quote, I'm actually going to sign it right here. DeSantis said that as he signed a piece of paper live on television. He answered a few questions, including whether one provision of the law mandating a $25,000 fine for any voter drop boxes left unsupervised or are allowed to be available during any time but voting hours. We said that the drop boxes were, um, look, I'm not a fan of drop boxes at all, to be honest with you, but the legislature wanted to keep them, but they need to be monitored. You can't just leave these boxes out where there's no uh, supervision, where they're in all hours of the night. So the drop boxes will be available only when they're monitored and during regular voting hours. And again, that's a $25,000 fine for violating that rule. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In more voter suppression news, today, New York State Attorney General Letitia James filed a request to intervene in a federal proceeding against two men being sued for allegedly sending out robocalls targeting black people with messages designed to deter voting. The calls went out in the months before last November's election. The group behind the robocalls was named Project 1599. Hi. This is Tamika Taylor from Project 1599, the civil rights organization founded by Jack Berkman and Jacob Wolf. Mail-in voting sounds great, but did you know that if you vote by mail, your personal information will be part of a public database that will be used by police departments to track down old warrants and be used by credit card companies to collect outstanding debts? The CDC is even pushing to use records for mail-in voting to track people for mandatory vaccines. Don't be finessed into giving your private information to the man. Stay safe and beware of vote by mail. The two men allegedly behind the calls, Jacob Wohl and Jack Berkman, are conspiracy theorists who maintain falsely that Donald Trump won the election. James says the calls, many came to New York, violated, as Tish James here of New York, our attorney general, violated state 
and federal laws by orchestrating robocalls to threaten and harass black communities through disinformation. David Brody, who leads the Digital Justice Initiative of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, says the defendants in the case knew exactly what they were doing. Last year during the election, in the late summer, early fall, the defendants in this case sent out robocalls to many thousands of people that were voter intimidation. And they were specifically targeting the black community, but they sent the robocalls to a lot of people. And the robocalls included a lot of intimidating and false information, trying to scare people away from voting by mail. We brought a lawsuit in the federal court in New York challenging what they were doing under the Voting Rights Act, as well as another law called the KKK Act. And we alleged that they were engaging in voter intimidation. The judge largely agreed with us initially and issued a restraining order preventing the defendants from conducting any more robocalls before the election. And now the case is progressing. We're doing what's called discovery, which means we are investigating and collecting evidence from the defendants. The new development today is that the New York Attorney General's office is joining the case as well as a plaintiff. Who got them and what geographic areas? There are tens of thousands of calls. They went to people in several states, including New York, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois. It appears that the defendants were trying to target communities with a high number of black voters. How do you know that? Based on the language of the robocall, the robocall is spoken by a person who is using language that is designed to resonate with the black community. There were emails from the defendants that were disclosed in a related criminal case in which they talked about targeting black voters. What about the criminal case and what's the connection to Donald Trump, do you think? There's two criminal cases, one in Michigan and one in Ohio against these same defendants. Our case is a civil case. The two criminal cases prosecuting them for violating those states' voting rights or telecommunications laws by sending these robocalls. In terms of connection to former President Trump, we don't have anything that we are alleging at the moment that connects these defendants to former President Trump. But it seems likely that they would be more likely to support him than to have been supporting President Biden's candidacy. What are you looking for? We're looking for monetary penalties to send a message that this kind of voter intimidation won't be tolerated and can be very damaging to anyone who is foolish enough to engage in it. And we're also seeking a permanent order from the court restricting these particular defendants from engaging in this type of activity in the future. David Brody leads a digital justice initiative of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
Former New York Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver will be returned to federal prison after federal authorities denied him home confinement. Silver was released yesterday from a federal prison on furlough while he awaited potential placement to home confinement. The 77-year-old Silver had been in prison since August where he was serving more than six years, uh, more than six years sentence at a prison in Otisville, New York. The Federal Bureau of Prisons didn't provide details or a reason for the transfer earlier this week, but Congress gave the Justice Department expanded powers during the coronavirus pandemic to release inmates on furlough and home confinement to prevent them from catching the virus behind bars. Silver's supporters have said he's in failing health and suffering from multiple medical conditions that make him more susceptible to contracting coronavirus. Silver was ultimately convicted in a scheme that involved a type of illegal back scratching that has long plagued Albany. He supported legislation that benefited real estate developers he knew. In return, they referred tax business to a law firm that employed Silver, which then paid him in fees. And this afternoon, six New Yorkers arrested last year at a George Floyd protest in Union Square Park returned to the park today to announce a class action lawsuit, alleging they and hundreds of others were unlawfully arrested, brutalized by police officers, and subject to prolonged life-threatening detention at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Lawyer Mohammed Ganjat spoke passionately of essential workers who were arrested, although they had no involvement in the protest. We're going to talk about the case of Victor Campbell. Victor Campbell was an essential worker delivering food for Whole Foods to ritzy, privileged New York City residents. None of them are here right now to show their support, by the way. Anyway, Victor Campbell leaves Whole Foods on his bike and he's headed home uptown. He's got a card in his pocket and that card says that he's an essential worker allowed to be outside during the curfew. He's on his bike and he hits a police checkpoint. The cops tell him to dismount. They take his bike immediately. He wouldn't get it back for several days, leaving him unable to work to feed his family. When the cops pulled Victor off that bike, they asked him, what are you doing out? You're out past curfew. He said, I'm an essential worker. I'm coming home. They said, let us see your ID. He shows them not only his ID, but a card that says he's an essential worker. It says the time he left his job. The cops take the, the ID and they have time to go check whether Victor Campbell has any warrants out. They come back and they say, you don't have any warrants, but you're getting arrested for breaking curfew. What about my card, officer? What about the fact that I'm an essential worker? You're getting arrested because you broke curfew. That was the sum total of Victor Campbell's experience. Victor Campbell gave that testimony in a sworn examination under oath before a lawyer for the city of New York. No one has called me to address Victor Campbell's case. No one has called me to discuss, hey, it's a new day in New York. We don't want to let claims like this go unnoticed. We don't want to do just throw them in the process and do the same old crap. We, the city of New York, this is what I expected after George Floyd. This is what I expected after this whole city went out into the streets and protested. I thought that if Victor Campbell gives sworn testimony under oath saying that I had this card on me and these cops, they checked me for warrants, but they didn't check if I was an essential worker. I would think a lawyer at the city of New York could see that and say, hey, maybe we ought to call this guy up and try to resolve his case. Nope, none of that. That's a problem. Attorney Mohammed Ganjit and lawyer Joshua Fuld Nesson added a story about a man assaulted and arrested by police on 10th Street in the Lower East Side as he was walking on the sidewalk. 
They met a wall of police officers marching in the street towards them. They decided to avoid a confrontation. So they went to the sidewalk, walking back east on 10th Street, peacefully. Suddenly, the officers started running after them. Before he knew it, a police officer grabbed David Garner, threw him on the street face down, and just like Derek Chauvin did, he placed his knee on his back. And just like the police did to Rodney King, three other police officers beat him with batons. No, they let him breathe, unlike Derek Chauvin, who didn't breathe. But the penalty was, for the next eight hours, every breath he took endangered his life. Why? Because clearly a policy on tie. They brought all these protesters, instead of to local precincts, down to one piece police plaza. They threw him into holding cells, crammed back to back, 75 people, no mask on. David Garner, every breath he took, he was fearing it. It was his last. Four of the six plaintiffs in the case spoke with WBAI. My name is Guy Barfield. I was a part of the protest standing around. It, it had moved a block away from Union Square. There were some people kneeling in the street. And when we were asked to move, it seemed as though everyone got up and started moving. But before, within seconds, within seconds, an unreasonable amount of time for them to get to the sidewalk, they started grabbing people up and arresting them. And some of them, like me, I was arrested so aggressively, I was tackled to the ground from behind without being able to brace myself for the floor. I hit my head. And the restraints were just so tight that I was, it was, it was terrible. It was a very horrible experience. How long did you jail for? For about 21, almost a full day, 21 hours about. The, the police officer who arrested who arrested me never showed up to place the charges, so I wasn't even charged. I was just held for no reason for 21 hours, and they didn't even, you know, they, they just said, you can leave. It's less about the 21 hours that I spent in jail because, you know, that was, you know, I'm over it now, I'm free. And it was more about the psychological impact of going out against police brutality and to be a, brutalized by the police you know it just the irony of it the uh it just it's hard to it's a hard pill to swallow because it's been going on for so long in america where as a person of color you have to be afraid or you're not there's so much uncertainty about how the rest of society views you and, and if they're gonna lock you up in a three strike law for, for the rest of your life for a petty crime or if they're gonna give you public assistance when you need you know so it's, it's very difficult to like get it out of your mind that these injustices happen every day. My name is Richard Vergara, United States Army veteran. I was a passerby during the protest, just going to meet up with some friends casually a couple blocks away from the incident, but I had to cross this area in order to get there. I was kidnapped. I never thought that something like that would happen to me, you know what I'm saying? But this is a major issue in our colored communities. I'm still in shock. I was on the bus with him, with Guy Barfield. They held this almost a whole day. Bruises along my wrist. I can't sleep knowing that I'm being hunted in my own community. This case is just a small representation of the genocide that's going across our land and our impoverished communities. Well, I was there at Union Square and, you know, similar story to a lot of other people. You know, just crowds of people. You're not doing anything, not breaking any laws. 
you know, assembled peacefully. And then, you know, out of nowhere, just the police rushed you. I got pushed against the wall, punched in the face by the cop, taken to the ground, held almost a day, handcuffs half the time behind your back in a sweaty van all night with no AC and horrible conditions. There was no need for that. Uh, you know, I got held for all that time for a disorderly conduct charge, and then I got a letter saying I don't. the case was dismissed um, before the court date. My name is Islam Al-Gamal, and I have a very similar story to Simon. I was meeting up with Simon that day, and just like Rich, we have to, I had to cross by Union Square to meet Simon, and then we just found ourselves like in a group of people, and then like we were trying to leave at that point because we heard the police saying, like, get out of the street, go on the sidewalks. I started walking towards the sidewalk. I turn around and I just see Simon getting pushed to the wall and then like two seconds later I just see three cops just like push me down hold me against the wall and just like arrested me it goes to show what could actually happen attorney Nesson says the lawsuit will demand significant damages we haven't specified a figure but it's punitive damage so it should be in the millions let me um is Get 1983 a good way to do that? Or we're not doing 1980. We're doing the New York State Constitution because the New York State Constitution, a, a, a claim enables you to get the city more liable more easily than, than showing an entire policy. Uh, other lawsuits which came after this can show the pattern. Attorney Joshua Fuldnesson. And finally, New York City plans to offer Johnson & Johnson vaccines to tourists beginning this weekend in an effort to draw more visitors to the city. De Blasio, Mayor Bill de Blasio, said the city was ready to begin offering the vaccines at sites such as Central Park, Times Square, the High Line, and Brooklyn Bridge Park. But the plan requires Governor Andrew Cuomo to change state vaccination rules to allow the city to immunize non-residents. A representative for Cuomo, uh, for Cuomo did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the plan. The effort also comes as the city's vaccination program has slowed dramatically with daily immunizations declining steadily from a high of 115,774 doses on April 8th, even as eligibility is expanded to include residents age 16 and up. This week, daily immunization counts have not gone above 44,000 doses. And that's some of the news for Thursday, May 6, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.